Blog Talk Radio. Movie Beat Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. Let me first say that the chat room is open. If you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. Number two, my guest today is Steve Anderson, director, writer, producer. And he's going to be with us in just a little bit, and I'm going to tell you all about him, but you're going to want to listen uh, to this gentleman about the current project he has as well as uh, his uh, previous project. So uh, stay tuned and pay attention. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that you're listening. I know you missed the quiet, please. It, it wasn't there today, but uh, we'll, I promise you it'll be back another time. Uh, if you're listening live, you know that uh, you can join us in the chat. If you're listening archive, that means if you're listening to a recorded show, uh, you know that all of these shows, over 400 hours of programming, are available at RexSykes.com. That's the official URL of RexSykes Movie Beat. It's my name. It's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. And as I said, all of these shows are archived right there that you can listen to anytime, 24-7, at the Interviews blog at RexSykes.com. So go and listen. Fabulous guests, filmmakers, directors, everyone from executive producer to craft services being represented both in front of and behind the camera. Lots and lots and lots of golden priceless, valuable information you're going to have to help you make your project smoother, faster, uh, easier, with less hassle, less headache, to get you from idea all the way to uh, market and uh, and beyond. So pay attention to what my guests have to say and use it as a learning tool. Also, they're all available at the iTunes store. They're all podcasts there. You can download it to your favorite electronic device, take it with you wherever you go. And they're available at the Blog Talk radio site. So you've got three different ways in which you can listen to these interviews. Now, because we're giving you this information absolutely free, we ask something of you in return, and that is spread the information, spread my guests uh, far and near. Tweet about them, Facebook them, you know, shout, email, you know, look at somebody across the coffee shop and say, hey, check this out, listen to this. Invite people to listen, whether you're listening live or archived. And then the second thing we ask you to do is rate and review the podcast and leave comments at the player. Whenever you leave comments, whenever you rate and review the podcast, it increases our visibility, increases my guest visibility on the Internet, and allows for other people who may not yet know about Rex Sykes Movie Beat and or my guests or have the opportunity to listen to professional filmmakers who every day are in the trenches making things happen, share their expertise with you. Uh, it helps them stumble across this information in, in the search engines and uh, because it increases our presence in the search engine. So that's what you can do for my guests and for me in exchange for bringing you the, my guests and my show. All right, everybody, uh, let me tell you about my guest, Mr. Steve Anderson. 
He's a writer, he's a director, he's a producer based in Santa Monica, California. He's proud to be one in the top ten of over 50 Steve Andersons on imdb.com. Now, readers of that website seem most impressed with his special thanks on the indie smash Napoleon Dynamite, but Steve has plenty of other f- sweet credits. Most recently, he wrote and produced the Sony-released feature film The River Sorrow, starring Ray Liotta and Kristen Slater. Steve is also a producer-director of the documentary, which was released theatrically by Think Film and made audience laugh and swear at it in over a thousand, I'm sorry, a hundred film festivals around the world. Uh, and that is with um, Drew Carey and uh, Bill Maher and Billy Conley and a host of other comedians, both uh, on film and elsewhere. You're going to want to take a look at that. Can't see the, I can't see the title of the film on the air. Let's just say it starts with an F, ends with a K, and there's a couple letters in between. So uh, uh, go and check it out. The Big Empty is a movie that his, it was his first theatrical feature, a dark comedy that starred John Favreau, Kelsey Grammer, Daryl Hannah, Racially Cook, and Sean Bean. Uh, Anderson's very cool media company is Mudflap Films. He's currently working on new feature projects, including The White Orchid and This Lonely Place. Now, we're going to talk a lot today about This Lonely Place. Very novel idea. Very, very uh, cool what uh, Steve is attempting to do. And so that's why you, you not only want to listen, you, we want to help you, or we want to ask you to help spread the word. All right. Steve's also an accomplished musician. He plays regularly around the L.A. area, and he's one of the original founding members of the legendary East Coast jam band, uh, Slipped and Fell. He's a Peabody Award-winning cameraman. He shot several, seven national documentaries for PBS and thousands of hours for broadcast television. And if there's uh, anything in the world that Steve hasn't done, uh, he might tell us about that today because the, the amount of things that he's had happened to him uh, as a as a filmmaker are absolutely incredible. I'm going to stop right here and uh, have you help me welcome uh, Mr. Steve Anderson. Hey, Russ. Hey, Russ. hey how, how are you, you doing, Steve? I'm doing very I'm well, good. Thanks thank for you. having me on. Oh well, I'm I'm happy that you're here. I truly am. And um, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my. Uh, uh, all of the windows and everything opening up, and uh, okay. actually, there was a little bit, just a little bit of adventure. Right as the show went live, I got a message on my phone, a reminder that I had to move my car. Oh wow! Because it was alternate, alternate. Uh, oh, parking, parking day, Santa Monica. And uh-huh. thanks to your long introduction, I was able to run down, get in my car, <laughs> and uh, move it across the street, run back upstairs, and make it just in time. So. Uh, Thanks for that wow. long introduction. Save that's, 60 that's, that's awesome. I'm happy that I could accommodate you in that way. Um, I, I, the miracle about those things is, is just the intuitive <laughs> awareness to, to know yeah. that you had to move your car and to, and to stall in that fashion. <laughs> um, well, you are a man of many hats and many talents uh, and, and many odd occurrences having happened to you, you know, as a, as a filmmaker around the world, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, your bio says, blessed, charged by lions, blessed by Mother Teresa. Uh, you had mm-hmm. the last interview with Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, you, uh, you got a lot of, a lot of interesting things. Can I, uh, ask you to, uh, before we get into everything else, can I ask you to say, what would be your, uh, pinnacle moment for you, the thing that you enjoyed or liked the most or that was the oddest or most surprising in, in all the different kinds of things that you've done? Wow, that's a loaded question because, you know, like you said, there's just been so many uh, adventures that I've been able to have both as a filmmaker and 
you know, prior to becoming a filmmaker proper, I was uh, a cameraman and worked mostly for CNN and other uh, sources around L.A. and uh, in New York where I'm from. So, you know, the opportunities there uh, just take you, took me all over the world. As you said, I got literally got blessed by Mother Teresa. I uh, spent time with Hunter S. Thompson. Um, I, I think actually that night with Hunter S. Thompson was certainly one of the highlights. I mean, he, uh, we interviewed him for the uh, the F Word documentary, and we went up to his his uh, place up in Colorado. And uh, the first night, I booked two nights just in case because I heard Hunter could be a little persnickety. And uh, the first night. He was, and we just sort of sat around, but he didn't really feel like doing the interview. It was a on-camera interview. So we came back the next night, and he was in great spirits, and we spent probably eight hours there with him. He, his uh, thing was he slept during the day, so he would wake up around 6 or 7 at night, and that was his morning. And so we uh-huh. got there, and we, we were there pretty much all night long with him doing the interviews, having a few drinks, all that sort of stuff. So it was uh, I've always been a huge fan of Hunter S. Thompson, so it was great to really kind of spend time with him like that. Can I ask you a question? Did the, did the portrayal of the Johnny Depp and, and the different people who portrayed him come close to any of the uh, memory or that you share of him? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Johnny Depp's portrayal uh, was was very close. I mean, it sort of captured the the manic energy of the guy. He would. It's sort of in the middle of the conversation, he would just sort of turn and slam his fist on the table or something just because he needed to get something. And he just sort of had this manic energy, but this manic energy sort of laid over this beautiful soul that he had. And when you got him talking about stuff, it was very heartfelt. The interview that we shot, even though it was specifically supposed to be about the F word and the F word's impact on culture and how he had used it, he would venture off into these stories that had to do had nothing to do with the F word, but I couldn't stop them because they were so amazing stories that uh, that it was just uh, you know like I said a pleasure to sit down have a scotch with them and, and uh, sort of sit back and uh, let the raconteur talk. Wow, how cool is that? Yeah. And um, so uh, people always want to know because you know you you you're in the film business you've 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 traveled prior to being your own filmmaker, filmmaking for other people and cinematographer and things like that. How did you how did you get started? They people are always curious about a career path um and how it led to you to writing and producing and directing. Well I started off I mean mostly it was sort of during college. I was a musician out of high school and played in a rock and roll band uh, for a couple of years a few years, and thought at the time that was going to be my career path, that I was going to be a rock and roll star, long hair, all that stuff. Um, but soon recognized that I really should probably go to college. I've been a lifelong uh, lover of, of learning. And uh, so I went to college, and I was an English major, and with writing in particular, a writing uh, major. And I, I sort of also dabbled in the theater. I liked the theater there, so I worked in the theater, would do lights, do set, all that sort of stuff. And it sort of led to a job at the local uh, PBS station as a production assistant. And I worked there about a year, and I got accepted into NYU Film School, um, was going to go, obviously one of the best schools in the country. And a couple of months before I was supposed to go, 
all three cameramen at the PBS station quit. So they offered me a job. I was young. I think it was, you know, probably 22. And they said, you know, if you take the job, you're not going to be able to go to school right away. But the first job is 60 days on the road doing a documentary about wine. So I said, hey, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll, uh, I think I'll do that. So I, you know, talked to the school, told them I was going to put it off for a year, and uh, but then ended up working at that PBS station for four or five years. I shot seven or eight national documentaries for them, won a Peabody Award, and uh, that just sort of led to me to decide to come out to Los Angeles. And that happened, I think it was 1989 or 1990. And from there, I started working as a freelance cameraman. I started to write screenplays and uh, trying to sort of you know, spend them out as I wrote them. But I started to work at CNN, and that gave me you know, a really good insight onto the, into the uh, entertainment business here in Los Angeles because most of the cameramen there liked covering hard news. But I love the entertainment side of things. So we would go uh, onto movie sets. We would go onto TV shows. We'd cover movie premieres. We'd go to the Oscars, the Emmys. So I sort of had a, you know, about a, probably about an eight-year sort of education in how things work here. And it was also great because I got to be around movie stars all the time uh, and learned how to talk to them, learned, you know, basically sort of immersed myself in the whole filmmaking world through that avenue. And, uh, I mean, I'm kind of jumping through a few hoops here, but, you know, basically what happened was I had written a script that I decided that I could make myself. I just written it uh, in about three weeks. It was called The Big Empty, and I was going to... It was the it was the time where everyone... It was a big section of indie filmmaking when everyone was putting things on their credit cards. That was the big thing. And that's what I was going to do with this film, and got picked up by couple of very good producers, Greg Daniel and Keith Resnick at the time, and they said, hey, you think you can get the money? A couple of other producers came on board, and pretty soon, you know, it was a fully financed feature. and had John Favreau and Daryl Hannah and Kelsey Grammer. And it's so, you know, it was sort of a circuitous route, but it was all pointed at that goal. And, uh, you know, from, from that point forward, I've been just trying to consistently make movies since. But it was, you know, it was one of those sort of great opportunities to uh, to learn filmmaking when, uh, you know, I was on these sets with CNN, and it was one of those, you know, sort of great learning experiences getting to, to sort of be there. So uh, when I sort of stepped wow. on the set to finally direct The Big Empty, that uh, it was, uh, you know, I wasn't used to it, but it, it wasn't foreign territory for me. Wow, no, that's really cool. Um, a couple of questions regarding that, because I know that the listeners are, are curious. But um, and before I get into asking you about uh, more about the the Big Easy and, and the production, um, somebody asked me by email and said, "How do you talk to movie stars? And <laughs> is there something that that uh, you learned that other people don't yet know?" And I, I would I would think that the answer for that is yes. Having having you know being being in Hollywood that there is there is a sort of a protocol that that is observed. But I'll let you let me yeah. have you answer that. Well, I, I mean the best advice I could have is I I fairly I would never I hardly ever how do I say this best I usually just engage them in typical conversation that I would talk to anybody else about the weather about uh, sports 
Hunter S. Thompson, I, you know, I just, the, the reason I sort of bonded with him at first is we started talking about basketball and sports and ESPN. He loved that. So we had about a 15 minute conversation about just kind of normal guy stuff. And then that transitioned into, you know, more, more talk about that. So with celebrities, I know that they they always love when someone comes up and says, you know, you're a big fan, and I loved you and such and such. But that kind of stops the conversation. All the all the actor or all the celebrity can do is say thank you very much. So, you know, if you ever have the opportunity or you're standing next to someone in line or you're a director, you know, it's best to just engage them as a person and uh, have a play conversation about, you know, whatever is the matter of the day. And then, you know, then often the conversation will turn to, to you know more entertainment matters, but it's it's best just not to kind of approach them right away with uh, with whatever they're famous for because they hear that all the time. It's it's they sort of love it when someone just approaches them and you know has something funny to say or or you know talk about the talk about the weather. I mean everyone talks about the weather. So. No, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's that's sound advice. I I, I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Do you um? And again, we have a, actually somebody wanted to know. Okay, so how did with the big empty? You know, you wrote this and you got the producers attached and then money. Um, this wasn't that many years ago. I mean, it's not like we're talking the '70s. I mean, in terms of you know independent films, uh, the road at that time for you. How, you know, can you can you elaborate more on how that process unfolded? That you were able yeah. to to get not only the financing but the big stars and the producers attached, and how that maybe and and the the, the follow up question to that would be how is it different today? Yeah, I mean to a certain degree it's the same today, although the the landscape, the ground beneath our feet has has changed quite a bit. Um, as far as financing, there's far fewer pictures like the Big Empty being made. They still are, but. You know, it would be very difficult to get the big empty made today under the same terms that we did it in, I think it was uh, 2003 or 2004. Um, uh, Basically what happened with that script, that project, was I'd written the script. Some producers got involved with it. They said it. They liked it. They wanted to option it, convinced me they could raise the money for it. And so we started down the sort of typical path, and they submitted it to you know, a few other financing entities. It's, it's very similar to what happens out here is if you get involved with producers. A lot of producers, and I'm one of myself, you know, we don't have our own financing. We may have enough to option a script or option a project and work with it, but it's not like we're going to finance the movie. So there's one big pile of money out here, and it's a kind of an ever-evolving pile. It gets a little bigger. It gets a little smaller, but certain people have it. Studios have it. Some production companies have it. Some equity-type uh, investors have it. And oddly, what happened with that one is one of our connections, one of the producer's connections was through a producer in Europe, and it got to Svensk Film, which was at the time, and, and it still might be, uh, Igmar Bergman's film company. He founded this company. And they read the script, and as it turned out, they loved it. I, was, I went to have a meeting with the guy who was in town for the Oscars. I thought I was going to have to pitch... Um, you know, why why it should be a good project for them. But at the lunch, almost from right away, he's pitching on me, trying to convince me to take their money. Uh, and they were willing to put up about half the budget. It was a $2 million budget at the time. 
And they said, look, we'll put up, actually it was $975,000. I still remember that. I was like, can't you go a million? And for some reason, it was just that. So we took that deal. And we had, so we had 975000 of a $2 million budget. And that opened quite a few doors for us. It was just the very fact that someone had stepped up and said that they liked it. There's so many gatekeepers in Hollywood and in the, in the film business in general that if you can get, you, you know, we hear the stories all the time, you get so-and-so attached or you have this much money. And what that really means is, uh, some of the risk is off the table for the people to come, you know, the people that are going to look at it. You can say, hey, look, Spence Film already put up a million dollars for this. So they've vetted it. They've looked at the script. They've talked to me. Uh, they know what's going on, and they're willing to put up a million. So it takes some of that guesswork off the table of, uh, you know, the next person you go to. And sort of dabbled around. We brought on another uh, producer, Steve Kaplan, uh, who I still do uh, you know, films with. I did The Big MT and the F-Word documentary. And he was eventually able to get it. Now, mind you, this took, I'm going to say, a year and a half, I'll told, but one of the reasons we had this money. So it was a constant submittal here, there, going to meetings, people considering it. Um, and we were you know, trying to cast it at the same time. And uh, I'm kind of telling you a little bit out of order. I'm trying to remember exactly when the casting came on. But uh, one of the funny stories, people love this story, so I'll tell you this because it kind of tells you how Hollywood works. We went into uh, UTA, United Talent Agency at the time, and they had a number of their clients that were interested in doing the film. And this is when we already had the money attached. So, again, I just didn't walk walk through the doors, but I came through the door with a partially financed film with big money committed to it. And so we sat down in this conference room with an agent, one of the head of the independent uh, film division at the time was Howard Cohen. He's still in business, but he's not an agent anymore. Um, and he kind of looked it over, and he said, well, let's go out and get attachments. And, uh, and, you know, let's cast. We'll cast some of our people. You can go out to other agencies. And I said to him, I said, uh, well, what do I tell these other agencies? Because the first question we always get is, is it fully financed? He didn't want to attach actors until it was fully financed. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, you know what? Just tell them it's finance. You know, if we can get so-and-so in there, we'll put in a couple of our stars. Just tell them, look, look them in the eye and tell them it's finance. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this, you know, this agent's advice. He's a big-time guy. So a month or two goes by. Finally, John Favreau gets interested in the lead, and he's with UTA. I have a meeting with John. He wants to do it. They call us back into UTA. I sit across the desk from Howard Cohen again. He's looking over it, and he said, well, is, is this movie financed? And so I looked him across the desk right into his eyes, and I said, yes, the movie's financed. So I just took his advice, threw it right back at him, and that's how we got Favreau on the board. So it was a little white lie maybe, but I was only doing what he had told me to do. So uh, anyways, that's just, you know, I could go on. I could probably fill up two hours on how it takes to, to finance a movie, but you know, the keys are patience and belief in your project and uh, just kind of keep trying to come at it from every angle. And if you can get somebody to come on board, a well-known producer, a star, uh, or someone with some money that's willing to put the money on the table when the movie's made, that's, that's your first step because that step's going to get you into many more doors because the, 
the project and the script's already been vetted to a certain extent. So, I mean, it's the best way to kind of, you know, to 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 make it happen like that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, put it this way, how has it changed? I mean, that's another, whole other chapter in this. I mean, as of right now, I'm on Kickstarter, and we have this project that uh, we're trying to raise funding for called This Last, this Last Lonely Place, and it's a uh, noir thriller. And so rather than go that whole route where I'd write a script and send it out to the financiers and try to get it from that way, I decided to kind of do it a whole different way and uh, look into this Kickstarter um, thing that's so popular. So I wrote this script sort of from page one to do for no budget whatsoever, and uh, all the budget is hard cost. It's a $75,000 budget. You know, perhaps we'll raise a little bit more, maybe by ten or $20,000 if we get a little bit more on Kickstarter. But, uh, you know, the, the best part about this is I don't have any financiers. It's all, you know, my own money and sort of Kickstarter money. Um, and I don't have a production company looking over my shoulder. I don't have producers looking over my shoulder. So I'm really going to be able to, to make the movie my own way, you know. And, uh, and we're lucky enough about halfway through the, the Kickstarter campaign to have um, the estate of Humphrey Bogart. It was something I could have never dreamed of, whether I sort of thought that, you know, I would never estate, uh, I would never approach you know, the estate of an actor like that. But they they saw a tweet that I put out, um, and I'll tell the story about that a little bit. They saw a tweet. It led them to the Kickstarter site. Wow. Um, and uh, Robert, who runs the foundation with Stephen Bogart and, and the other children of uh, Humphrey Bogart, uh, wrote me an email. I was on the road at the time. I said, sure, let's meet up. And it was sort of kismet. He, he you know, came on board and said, look, we're kind of, We've been looking for something like this. He didn't know that this was it either. He had thought maybe they'd put some money into an independent film and invest in the typical sense. But when he saw the sort of Kickstarter pitch, um, he knew that this was the right way. So they agreed to put in $10,000, become an executive producer. That's one of the one of our perks uh, on the Kickstarter page. And uh, to also to match donations, um, up to our goal of uh, up to our goal of seventy five thousand. So we're down to, I think it's fifty eight hours left, and we have about ten thousand dollars to go. So we're kind of on pins and needles at this moment. And it's this last lonely place at Kickstarter, correct? Yeah, it does. It has one of those convoluted Kickstarter, uh, you know, links. But if you go to Kickstarter and search for this last lonely place. Um, it'll take you directly to the page. And from that page, there's links to our, our Facebook page, my Twitter account, all sorts of things. So, you know, if people are interested, they should definitely go to that. Uh, we put it this way. We could really use your help. We've got to close a, about a $10,000 gap in, in about, I think it's 50, I have to look right now. I think it's like 58 hours or something. Right, in a little more than two days. <laughs> You've yeah. got uh, a lot to raise. Uh, they can also go to your biography page at regsykes.com. So if they're if they're looking at Twitter and they've they've tuned in or they've come by the way of link of Twitter from 
from our show link, they can go to your biography page at RexX.com in the interviews blog, and there's a link to the Kickstarter campaign right there. So, And I always encourage people to do this. Go to the bio page, read the bio, click on the links that are in there you know, as well, and, uh, and steer your friends to uh, the page as well. Can you, you know... Um, I got kicked out of my own studio uh, moments ago, and and, um, and <laughs> I was wondering. Could, I sort of I talked a long yeah, time, but hopefully I covered the uh, the air pretty well. Yeah, no, you did great. I, you know, it was kind of like I had to go move my car, and then I had to make <laughs> some soup, and uh, I took the kids to the beach, and then I came back, and and you were just finishing up, so that was good. That great. was great. No, I, I just. Uh, no, I did. I got kicked out of the studio. That just, uh, you know, I, I uh, just so the audience knows, I had, I had mentioned to Steve right before. It happens very rarely out of 400 hours programming, and you know, I get kicked off once or twice or something. Like that. Today was the day that I got kicked off. Um, so uh, I'm always glad that I mentioned it. But getting back on today was mm-hmm. also difficult, and being in the chat room, it just seems that there's a lot of techie issues, and I apologize for those. Um, but there have been lately with this platform as well. So. Um, they got to get some bugs out of it. Uh, so um, I, I did miss the last parts of what you were saying about you know um, the big empty, and we're now into this last only place. Have you described what the what the concept of this last only place is about the the log line or uh, any of the interest and in how how the uh, the Bogart connection uh, makes sense? Well, I, I haven't. I just talked a little bit. I mean the. I decided to write, I'm a big fan of genre pictures and particularly film noir. Uh, you know, almost everything I write has some sort of angled into film noir. The Big Empty, you know, was sort of a dark comedy but had, you know, noir aspects to it. And I thought if I was going to do a low-budget film, it was great to be inspired by noir because back in the, the 40s and 50s, when it wasn't even called film noir, by the way, back then, but w- when they were doing what we now call film noir pictures, it's, for the most part, it's what they were. They were sort of B-movies. They were done at a low budget, uh, at short schedules, with, uh, with great actors, but actors that may not have become huge stars yet or, or bigger stars that were, you know, sort of uh, trying to revive their career in some fashion. So I thought that was a great uh, starting place to make a very low-budget film that we're going to make you know, here in Los Angeles. And the kind of, the basic concept I came up with was, you know, I've watched a lot of these ultra-low-budget films in the past few years, and there's a lot of great ones out there, but one of the common denominators of most of them is when you have a very low budget, you don't, you can't have a lot of locations. They're usually set, you know, in a, mostly in a house or on a farm or, or a location that is sort of, you know, set in one place. So I kind of thought about, I was driving around one day and, and saw a taxi cab, and I thought, well, what if, how about if we set most of the film in a cab ride, and as the cab goes around Los Angeles, then literally all of Los Angeles becomes, uh, you know, our set, our, our location. And I love Los Angeles. I've lived here for, you know, well over 20 years now, and it's a, a city that I love, and I thought that this was a great way that we could tell a, a sort of a noir thriller um, and uh, set in Los Angeles, make Los Angeles you know, almost a character in the piece. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I devised the plot, and it's, you know, it's about the cab driver um, that picks up a, uh, a businessman, an investment banker in Beverly Hills late one night, and the, the banker is obviously nervous, on edge, 
and we find out pretty shortly that he has just murdered his wife. And he has a bag full of money in the back seat, and they have to drive around a few minutes before they go to pick up his mistress, who's also in on the crime. And uh, when she gets in the car, uh, things just basically go from bad to worse. And so it's it's sort of this hellish cab ride around Los Angeles uh, over the course of one evening. And I, I entitled it, I went through a number of titles, but I called it This Last Lonely Place because... Uh, it's sort of an embodiment of a noir title. It's certainly reminiscent of uh, Bogart's film, In a Lonely Place, although it, it, I wouldn't call it a direct homage to that title because my film has nothing to do plot-wise. But, and, and it also has something to do, I thought, with The Big Sleep. Um, the Big Sleep, the great metaphoric title, refers to The Big Sleep, which is death that we all sleep after our life. And in no small way, this last lonely place also refers to that same thing. We've lived a life with people who come to the end of our, our days and we pass away, and that, that's this last lonely place that we end up in. Wow. And uh, I think that, you know, what what happened, uh, it's kind of an interesting story, is we started the Kickstarter campaign. It uh, it got off to a you know, very pretty good start. We got uh, four or $5,000 in the first few days. Um, and uh, we're asking for 75000 which is, you know, quite a bit compared to most Kickstarter campaigns. There's been films that have asked for more and got for more, but I carefully budgeted out the film and figured out that I could do it uh, for that way. And, you know, so we started, as everyone does, and it's so important, this sort of uh, social media campaign through our Facebook page, through my Facebook page, through Twitter, through the film's Twitter account. And for the first, you know, week, it's just sort of this relentless, tweeting and, and uh, networking and trying to get the word out. And I had to fly back east for a few days, and I was in the airport late one night. I was taking a, a red-eye back, and I got so tired of just tweeting out the same, you know, please check out our campaign, blah, 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 that sort of same kind of tweet uh, or, or post that you have to do. And so I sat back and I started to uh, insert the word Kickstarter into famous movie quotes that I could remember. For example, Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. I would write, we're going to need a bigger Kickstarter. And then a link to our Kickstarter. And one of those, uh, I don't remember specifically, but I know uh, I probably did one, you know, here's looking at new Kickstarter, or this is uh, one of Bogey's lines, or I I think the one that was, it says, this is going to be the beginnings of a beautiful Kickstarter, which is Bogey's line from Casablanca. And... I'm pretty sure what happened, i got to talk to Robert specifically about this, but uh, Robert DeClerc uh, is one of the managing members of the estate uh, that's uh, with Bogart's other two children and Lauren McCall, who's still alive. Um, I think he saw that. I think they sort of monitor Twitter and Facebook for mentions of Bogart. And he wow. saw that. It led them to uh, our Kickstarter site. And he was intrigued with uh, with our video that we have there and the sort of pitch, and obviously kind of took a look at the title, this last lonely place, as echoes of Bogart, and he, you know, he emailed me. So it was kind of, you know, it really worked the way it was supposed to. I mean, the social media found, you know, we we connected through social media through Twitter, and they became very interested and, and wanted to become involved in in the in the film. 
That is really fascinating. I mean, that tr- truly is fascinating. I know that friend producer Ted Hope ended up producing the movie uh, that James Gunn directed uh, with uh, Rain Wilson, mm-hmm. Super, because he happened to see on Twitter they, they were having funding problems and whatever, but they were talking about the, their film and their movie, and, and he got interested and then was like, what's going on and what's it about? And and uh, and the whole movie pulled together as a result of of being on Twitter. I mean, the fact that you connected with the Bogart estate it's really cool. It's really it's, yeah. it's neat. To, you know, it's neat to know that that especially I think for the it, it, this does not apply to unit, but it, you know for the for the 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 um, the newbie filmmaker to go. Wow, you know, I I may be you know actually someday somebody may see what I do or somebody may read my tweet. Okay. It should also it should also give us a sense of responsibility probably too or accountability for what we tweet. Uh, exactly. You know, to be careful. It, but, was, it but, was really a, a kind of a, I call it kind of a kismet situation because yeah. I, I, as a filmmaker who's consistently, constantly, almost every day, I'm trying to figure out a way to get money for my projects. I mean, we have projects we can make, we have the equipment we can make them with, but, you know, it costs money. You have to pay actors, you have to pay crew, you have to figure out, you know, ways to pay it. And I, I would have never thought, hey, let's go contact the estate of Humphrey Bogart or or right. something like that. And, you know, but when he contacted me, and I'll be honest, when I first got the email from Robert, I was a little concerned. I thought, uh, well, maybe they're kind of, they want to know about this project because the title is so close to Bogart's. I thought maybe right. they had some concerns that I was redoing it or, or whatnot. But when we sat down, you know, he just sort of explained to me that they'd been very interested in uh, getting involved in some way back into the film business because it was the business that, that Bogart loved. Uh, he loved, um, you know, giving newcomers a, a chance. Uh, he got brought into the business just because, you know, he was given a chance. He, he wasn't your typical handsome movie star. No. Um, and, and, you know, people gave him a chance and he never forgot that. And so Stephen Bogart, um, you know, decided that this could be, you know, a great way to, to carry on the tradition of his father. And, uh, and at a relatively, you know, uh, low cost, they can, they can get involved. They can be executive producers on the film. And, uh, and obviously for me, it's a great, a great thing. And it's really not just about the, you know, the money that they put in. That's obviously a huge help, but, uh, but I, you know, I've been a, like I said, a fan of film noir, you know, all my life. And to kind of have Humphrey Bogart's name associated with it is very meaningful. In, in 1948, Bogart kind of left the Hollywood studio system, and he he formed his own production company, Santana Productions, because he wanted to make movies his way. And it was his way of sort of reinventing himself and and stepping out without the studios looking over his shoulder. And in no small way, that's exactly what you know we're doing with this film. It's uh, it's a whole new way of sort of uh, you know making a movie. Um, we're stepping away from the, the the production companies and the equity investors and, and the studios. Uh, and mind you, I live right. You know, I live in Santa Monica, which is right in the heart of West LA, where you know, all the studios make the picture. But we're going to be able to make the picture our way, and that sort of link through history back to Bogart doing it the very same way is it, it's very meaningful. So I'm, I'm thrilled with their association. It, it's really, it truly, truly is 
very cool, and it's a cool project. And the, the whole idea about it is is is, is awesome, frankly. What mm-hmm. else is really neat, and I encourage everybody to go and take a look at, is the video that you shot of Los Angeles at nighttime from a car at the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just it's gorgeous, and and you know, I went, wow, how how cool visually is this movie because i was like you know as a as a los angelino myself i'm looking at uh, places you know what do i recognize and oh that looks like you know this brief flash of this was over you know and i and, but i i was mesmerized by it and and listening to you talk about the campaign at the same time so it's a it's a really nice piece uh right well, there I, yeah we shot the you know I, my on-camera stuff we just shot it uh, at my apartment i live in santa monica and i kind of have you know long before this I've kind of painted my apartment and it kind of has a old Hollywood feel to it. I have a lot of uh lamps and and things like that that used to be on movie sets that kind of surrounded myself with that, so that was kind of a good place to to shoot that video and then I went out with you know my good friend Andre Fontenelle one night and we drove around downtown l a where uh a big part of the of of the movie takes place in downtown and the west side of l a and we kind of shot those landmarks that, that you see in downtown L.A. And, and Los Angeles at night really becomes a, a whole different uh, world than Los Angeles during the day. Los Angeles during the day is sunshine and palm trees and you know, beautiful women. At night, there's a slightly more, you know, dark tone to it. It becomes much more mysterious. And so we sort of, quite frankly, I, sh- I thought I was going to cover about a 30-second, um, you know, a sort of montage that's what we shot for, but, you know, as you sort of edit down those videos, they start out at 10 minutes, and then you edit them down to 8 and 6 and 5. I realized that it would be best if we sort of spread that footage, you know, over. But it was just shot on a, you know, basic HD camera and with no, you know, no movie trappings, you know, no uh, filters, no anything. We just drove around in the car and, and shot things as we saw it, but it really did come together pretty well. One of my Oh, yes, no, it did, absolutely. One of my favorite things to do, especially in the 70s, was to drive at nighttime in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so there would be times where I'd be in my apartment, you know, and it'd be 2 in the morning, I'm just going to go out for a drive. And I would get in my car and I'd drive to downtown mm-hmm. or drive through Hollywood or somewhere. Sometimes I'd, you know, put a tape in the car that, it, like, Edgar Verisi music or something. It was just this kind of weird collection of sounds, and I'd drive around. Because especially back then, now, now like, downtown is much, much nicer, but it does have still a dark side. And what I don't think people, if you don't live in Los Angeles, can appreciate is you're talking about 4,000 miles. I mean, you know, you're talking yeah. square miles. I mean, it is a vast city. I mean, some of the streets, you know, when I think in terms of comparison, you can drive along Wilshire Boulevard for, you know, in, in many ways for as long as you can from town to town and in, in other states. And, yeah, um, and every street, you know, in this city has a story. I mean, you, I, I'll never forget the first year I come here, and I often talk about it with other people that, uh, you know, are have moved to Los Angeles, is the first year you're here, you c- continually happen upon, like, oh, Melrose Avenue, I've heard of that. Right. Oh, there's the Paramount Pictures, or there's, you know, Franklin. I've heard of Franklin Drive, you know, Avenue. All these little touchstones that have been placed into our head, uh, primarily by movies, by movies that have right. made, been made in Los Angeles. Suddenly, you're here, and the whole world, the whole city of Los Angeles, kind of becomes alive for you. You realize that it's kind of lived with inside, inside you, 
um, for your entire life. And now that you're here, it's a very I did. I do the same thing. I drive around, and uh, I, I would put on jazz. I put on sort of old forties and fifties uh-huh. jazz or Charlie Hayden's quartet. Oh yeah, which sort of harkens back to that stuff. And I still do that to this day, you know. And it's been it's actually been great vocation scouting for this film. Is kind of driving around doing it, uh, doing the same thing you just described. Yeah, I mean, if you put on the music of the era too, I think like I would drive along Pacific Coast Highway and, and go up past Delma Todd's. You know, place and things like that. Imagine what it would have been like in the twenties, you know, the thirties, yeah. to to you know to have lived there, or you know when you know when she was found dead in her garage and stuff like. That. I mean, I there's that and there's that whole dark haunted side of Hollywood and the whole kind of Hollywood Babylon esque kind of thing. It's a it's, so your concept is really to be very very intriguing. Let me uh, do this though, Steve. I'm going to take a short short break. Okay. And then I'm going to come back. And, uh, and we're going to continue the conversation, if that's okay with you. Yep, that's fine. Awesome. You're listening to my guest, Mr. Steve Anderson, and he's a director of uh, The Big Empty and, and uh, the F-Word movie, a documentary by that name. Uh, it's not that name. It's The, the F-Word is the name of the movie. Um, and a new movie coming out called uh, This Last Lonely Place, which has a Kickstarter campaign. And so... Go to kickstarter.com and look up this last lonely place. And then do give as you're led to give, you know, if you can help and contribute in any way. They've got about two days left. They've got less than 55 hours or 58 hours, something like that. So you want to make sure that if you can help out, help out. If you can help out, spread the word. You know, share it with somebody else. Tell somebody else about it. Tweet it, Facebook it, do something to to uh, keep uh, it moving into the hands of people who may be able to uh, help them reach their goal before the deadline comes past. All right. Again, you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official URL is rexsykes.com. All of these interviews are archived right there at the interviews blog. They're also available as podcasts from the iTunes store. Please always rate and review and leave comments when you listen to the shows and share them as well. If you're in the chat room right now, go ahead and you can help out my guest today by retweeting his Kickstarter campaign by retweeting the interview link so that people can come and listen to him right now uh, before the interview concludes, or they can listen to the archived interview because all of the interviews, as I said, are stored and available at uh, RexSykes.com. I have a lot more guests coming up in the near future, so you need to stay tuned. I'm not going to go into who the guests are. Uh, Just know that they're coming down the pike. They'll be announced either on my Facebook page at Facebook Sykes Movie Meet Friends or on the website or by Twitter, so so pay attention. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here today and every day and for all the letters and the thanks and the supports and the phone calls. And when I meet you in person, I really do appreciate all of that. Serum the Movie, just for those people who are always interested, it's the movie that I'm currently directing right now, is doing great. So uh, we're we're moving forward with that. It's going fantastically well. So thank you, thank you. All right, back with my guest, Mr. Steve Anderson. Let me uh, take back a little bit, Steve, because people always want to know, and go back to the big empty, and go back to, you know, you got this financed, you met with agents, and you got the deal, and you're talking a $2 million movie, and Sean Favreau is interested. What is that like for you? Now, you had said that you had been, you know, traveling and been on the red carpet, you talked to actors and everything, but I think a lot of people are really nervous. They go, wow, what if, you know, a star (coughs) got interested by picture? You know, Mm -hmm. how do I... And how do I even begin? What do you know? <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, that's right. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, what basically what happened with with 
John was he, through UTA, as I told the story earlier, the agency, they did like the script. Uh, and, you know, it's obvious, I'm sure everyone will say, you know, well, if you can get a big agency that uh, likes your script, it helps. And it does, but it, it doesn't, uh, put it this way, since the Big Empty, I've had plenty of scripts that big agencies have been interested in. You know, it's sort of flattering, but they, uh, it, it very seldom actually kind of comes to fruition. But what happened with John was he had the script. You know, we put out an offer to him. I uh, thought he would be a great uh, lead. This was, you know, prior to him. He had just directed Made, which I think was his first film. So he was sort of venturing into filmmaking himself. And I kind of liked that, to be honest with you. I mean, I was a first-time director. I had financiers that were risking their, you know, money on me. I had confidence in what I was about to do. I, I sort of felt like I'd you know, practiced and prepared my whole life to direct a feature. I mean, I, I think it was Rob Reiner who said once that, that and I'll paraphrase him, but he said that he was always kind of talented at writing. He was kind of talented at music. He was kind of talented at, at visual aspects and visual arts. And and that's a, that's a little bit like me as well. I'm a, I'm a very good musician. I, I can write scripts. I can do all these various artistic and creative endeavors, but where they really all come together is as a director because you have to really utilize all those tools when you're directing. And, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest tips I can I can say to first-time directors is just to be very confident in what you're doing. Uh, figure out a game plan. Figure out what you want to do. Uh, you have to be open to suggestions and you have to be very patient and you have to uh, take a left-hand turn down the roads as they open up to you sometimes. But if you're confident in the picture, confident in your sort of vision of what you want to do, um, and talk about it quite a bit, because that's really one of the main uh, things is when you go into these different meetings or you'll meet an actor for the first time, uh, they won't say it, but what they're listening for is, does, does this person, does this, this woman, does this guy, do they kind of have their stuff together? Do they, do they know what they're doing? Am I able to sort of put my trust in the person? And, you know, that's, I had been trying to put together the movie already for well over a year, year and a half, so I kind of was in that mode. I knew how to talk. I knew how to approach. And as I said before, I had been around movie stars quite a bit, so I wasn't intimidated when I sat down across the table. Now, that being said, when you first sit down across the table in, you know, on Sunset Boulevard with John Favreau, which I did, your heart's in your throat. You're, not, you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm here with, you know, a, an actor and a person that I really respect and they're interested in me and now you got to kind of lay it on the line. Um, it's difficult. I, you know, I think it's difficult for, you know, the most successful directors, the most successful filmmakers because, you know, that's your moment to sort of uh, convince these people that, that, that they should do your film. But John and I sat down. We had a very good cup of coffee like I said, at a hotel there on Sunset Boulevard where he, he lived pretty close to the time and uh, had a great conversation. At the end, he said, look, I'm in. I like the script. You know, I like what you want to do with it. And once he became involved, you know, John was a person, and even to this day, he's very well respected uh, by people in Hollywood and especially other actors. I mean, almost every actor can look back at Swingers and feel what it was like those first few years that you're in Hollywood you're struggling, 
you know you're talented, you know you can make it. So, you know, the movie Swingers is a touchstone for literally everyone that's ever came to Hollywood with dreams of, of becoming a filmmaker. So John established right away with that film and with his personality that uh, he's somebody that, you know, people want to work with. And, you know, so a combination of a good script, uh, a very likable actor, and, and someone that's a, a magnet to other talent, you know, we obviously ended up with a, you know, it's a laundry list cast. I mean, you know, it's Sean Bean and Bud Cortz, uh, Joey Lauren Adams, Kelsey Grammer, and, you know, Brent Briscoe, Melora Walters, John Grice. I mean, every every, every role was filled with uh, with a with a very recognizable, if not a name actor, you know, very respected actor. And and another before I you know before I think about it or forget about it, one of the reasons that that happened was when I wrote that script, The Big Empty. I thought I was going to do it for nothing. I thought I was going to put twenty grand on a credit card. I was going to do it with other actor friends. And I was going to tell them, hey, let's all chip in. Like, everyone chip in. Everyone, you know, chip in 500 bucks or something, and we'll all produce this movie. You can be in it. I'll direct it. Uh, I, there was nothing in the script. It was one of the rules that I didn't own or I couldn't get very easily. I, there was nothing I needed to rent. Um, but what I made sure that I did, because I was going to be asking actor friends to kind of chip in, which is unusual. Usually they would get paid. I made sure that each of the roles, even if there were small supporting roles that were just in one scene, I made sure that they were really good roles. Uh, they were page, page and a half, great characters. I made sure that they had some laugh lines, that they had good things to say. So what happened with the script then is each of the, every time Favreau encounters a new character in the town of Baker, the small little town that really exists, uh, it's about halfway between Los Angeles and uh, Las Vegas, you know, every character is memorable. And actors, uh, when more famous actors read those roles, they loved it. And they said, great, we can come in for a day or two, have a lot of fun playing this character. And uh, so that, that, I think that's a really good tip is, you know, a lot of, I'm a screenwriter, it's really how I make my living. But I still do that to this day. If there's a small role, uh, I try to make it in some, some sense memorable. I make sure to give them a good role or a meaningful moment in there because every actor not going to be a main and lead actor, but, you know, every actor is going to need a little meat on that bone. I mean, they're going to want something to chew on, even if they only have three or four lines. And so it's a great way to improve your scripts. Most screenwriters will just focus on the few lead characters, and then they'll have the cop or the doctor that kind of comes in and delivers some lines. But if you can make those uh, uh, subsidiary characters, supporting characters, smaller ones, somehow interesting, it just raises the level of the whole script, and, and that's what happened with uh, The Big Empty, and I continued to do that right up to this this last lonely place, which is, you know, the, the la I just wrote the script about two months, three months ago, um, and uh, wrote it from page one to do it with its Kickstarter method, but I tried to do the same thing. There's a great scene at the end. Uh, where the cab gets pulled over by California Highway Patrol, and it's one scene for this officer, but it's a great scene. People talk about that scene all the time when they read the script. So, um, you know, basically it's confidence, having a great script, and uh, and persistence and patience. Those are the, the four things. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic advice. I mean, and, and it's making each scene count and having memorable characters 
you know, who fill each seat. That's that is awesome. I, mean, I just want to point something out if people don't know that, and or if they're searching. I have UVerse. I switched over a while back, but I have UVerse, and right now on Showtime, in fact, today. Uh, in about an hour and ten minutes, the Big Empty is actually going to air on Showtime. Oh yeah, I've been getting. Uh, I, I, mean, I don't have Showtime, but I get. Uh, I've been getting all sorts of emails and and uh, you know, notices on the Facebook page and and texts when it's on. People will just sort of call me up randomly, and uh, it's great. It's funny when you're the filmmaker. A lot of times you're bouncing around on TV, and you'll end up on. On the movie, there it is. There it is. You're like, oh great, the movie's on, and I'll watch this. And then after about five minutes, you're like, why am I going to watch this? I've seen it 300 times already. So you know, it's kind of interesting in that fashion that you get kind of all all of a sudden excited, but then you're like, okay, well, I I've seen this already. Um, I spend but, hundreds uh, and hundreds of hours editing it. Yes, I know this. Yeah, exactly. It looks vaguely yeah. familiar. It would be scary, wouldn't it? If you go, yeah, you know, I think I know how this movie ends. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, no, you've you've given out such great, great advice. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of of, of questions that may seem off topic because one is they are. You, you do you know my friend Matt Berry, casting director, producer? He's a huge Kings no, I've, fan. I've heard the I've heard the I name, mean, but uh, I I don't know uh, personally. No. No, I just wonder because he's a huge hockey fan. Yeah, and, no, I'm, you, and as. As am I. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I live and die hockey. I'm first of all I'm a <laughs> Buffalo Sabres fan because that's um, I'm from upstate New York. Well, that was my next my next reference was the Buff- Buffalo Sabres. So yeah, yeah, because I uh, you know I live and die hockey. I, I kind of let all of their sports to a large degree fall away. I watch everything, of course, but uh, I buy that uh, centerized package and love hockey. I also love the Kings. Uh, when I first moved out here, one of the first jobs I got was uh, as a cameraman for Prime Ticket um, covering Kings games. So Bretsky had just been traded to the Kings uh, the year before. And to be honest, it was one of the reasons I moved to Los Angeles. I was like, look, I can go out there. I can go to Kings games. I can watch Bretsky. <laughs> there you go. As it turned out, I got a job doing, you know, for about two or three years, I worked uh, as, a, as a cameraman. I was the cameraman that's always down in the corner, you know, and covering the yeah. – the players as they crash into the board. So it was a great experience. <laughs> Sounds like a job made in heaven. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. So are you a hockey fan as well? I am, I am. But the the, the, the reason that it came out is a, is a friend of yours, uh, TC, is in the chat room. Oh, okay. Okay, so yeah, I'm sure TC is giving... Uh, He's a he, he's a Bruins fan, so uh, he prompted. He no, he just prompted and, and and said, "Ask about the Buffalo Sabers." I hadn't gotten there yet, so I <laughs> so you you brought it up, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, Matt produced uh, Alpha Dogs. He's one of the producers in Alpha Dog, and, uh, and okay, he's a yeah. huge huge hockey fan. And if you go to his pages on Facebook, oftentimes it's just hockey reference after hockey reference. So it's it's amazing to me, up. though. I mean that that the L.A. people. The thing that surprised me more about Hollywood probably than anything else is that there's a huge hockey contingent and a huge Green Bay Packer contingent. Yeah, and I'm one of those too. I'm a I'm a, I'm a Bills fan, but since I was a little kid, I, the first team I ever loved was the Green Bay Packers. I I remember watching. I was I think five or six years old at the time. I have to do the math, but I remember specifically watching the second Super Bowl. Um, oh wow! Against the Again, the Packers versus Raiders. So, you know, I've, I've really held uh, a love for them as well. So, it's, and it's been easier in the past 
you know, 15 years to be a Packers fan than it has been to be a Bills fan. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, but that's great. So LTC, I said, hey. So um, going back to the film, though, and going back to this last lonely place again, and reminding everybody that the campaign is on Kickstarter and to go and, and check it out and to share that with other people. And if you can, tweet live about it right now or Facebook go to, or email someone or phone them. Uh, the the um, the notion of going completely independent, you know, you, do, you, know, you don't have the financiers, you don't have anyone to answer to, you, you know, you, you get the money, you make the movie, it goes into the production, and then there's post. And then there's post-post, uh, there's the marketing, there's the PR and distribution, and uh, the life after that. And and in terms of the distribution of the movie, are you attempting to do the same thing, and that is to uh, distribute it yourself? And, uh, and, um, and if so, do you have a particular game plan in mind that, um, that you can share? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, the game plan at this time, I mean, as you can guess, I mean, making a movie in Los Angeles for $75,000 is not going to be easy. I mean, we're going to use experienced crew. We've got a great team coming together. And the way I've decided to do this, and uh, it's, it's been challenging because you have to explain it to quite a few people, but what I've decided to do is I've basically used uh, filmmaker Ed Burns and the Polish Brothers, who just recently had you know, very good success with, uh, ultra-low-budget films. Ed Burns did Nice Guy Johnny and Newlyweds, and the Polish Brothers did For Lovers Only. And what they did is they make the movie for essentially nothing. Uh, I've gotten the crew, my crew, to agree to take no salary on the film. We're going to have, uh, you know, probably around 20 days shooting or so. We're working on the schedule as we speak. But the reasons they're willing to do that is, number one, they love the script, but number two, because we're raising funds through Kickstarter and some of my own money, we don't have any financiers to pay back. We don't, and typically, you'll, you know, if the listeners know, you take financiers' money and they get paid back first. So if you take a million dollars from a financer, they're going to take that, the first million dollars that you make, they're going to take that back first, plus usually, you know, some percentage, usually around 20%. So if you go to Sundance, you make a movie for a million dollars, and you sell it to Merrimax for $2 million, the first million point two is going to come right off the top and go back to that investor. Now, that's fine. They've risked real money to do it, so I, I don't have a problem paying them back, but it tends to put the filmmakers and the crew almost in the hole on the financial side right from the very beginning. That last 800000 that that is left over, you typically split 50-50 with the investors. So, you know, that... that Two million that you get, the the investor is going to get 1.6 back right away, and then there's 400,000 out of that two to split with uh, with the filmmakers, with the producers, with the actors, anyone that has a piece of the film. On this scenario, however, because we don't have any investors to take back, and because we're making the movie for such a low amount of money, we essentially go to gross profit right away. We don't have anyone to pay back. There's no equity in the movie. So everyone's going to work for a piece of the pie, essentially. And so I've arranged a you know, pretty equitable distribution of percentage uh, points, I guess, as they're usually called in, in uh, movie terms, although we're not really calling them that. But everyone, the three lead stars, uh, the main uh, crew, the DPs, and 
production designers, they all get a certain percentage. And uh, we all assume the same risk in making the film, but if the film's successful on the back end, then it's basically the same kind of deal Tom Hanks gets on a studio film. We basically get first dollar gross. So what we plan to do, at least at the moment, is we're going to make the film, we're going to make it great, um, we're going to take the time to edit it and all the posts, and uh, then we'll go probably the typical festival route. We'll try to get it into uh, you know pretty uh, better known festival and do a short festival run. But then I'm looking at you know possibly just you know th- this film is not really made uh, for you know the big screen. Quite honestly, it's made for the small screen. It's one of those films that people are going to download and rent and watch on Netflix and that sort of thing. And we're going to at least in theory. If someone steps up a big dis- distribution company and they want to buy the film and write us a check, of course we're going to look into that option. But my main business plan is to do this you know, basically on my own. Make the movie and then distribute it on our own through video, you know, basically VOD stuff, you know, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Netflix. And, uh, you know, since we're making it for well under $100,000, if we can make, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on this movie, it will be a success, and, uh, you know, we can go on to make other movies. And I'm really hopeful that this, I honestly think that this is a brand-new paradigm in how filmmakers can make films and control their films and uh, make films that they want. Now, there's a lot more work than some typical filmmakers might want to uh, do. I mean, some writers just want to write, some filmmakers just want to, or directors just want to direct. But if you can conceive of a film from the you know, very first sentence of a script that you can do for a very small amount of money, and you can raise that money somehow uh, through Kickstarter, through uh, you know, your uncle or somebody that's willing to, to give you a loan, this is going to be a way that a lot of films are going to be made in, in the future. And I'm hopefully going to prove this because it's not really about making money. I mean, I think most real filmmakers... You know, the reason we love to make films is because we love to tell stories, we love to entertain people. Of course, you need to make a living. You need to pay rent, you need to, you know, have a few creature comforts in your life. But, you know, I'd be doing this for free if I, if I could live for free. Um, so I really look at this, this method. I'm still going to kind of continue on to write other scripts that could be made through the more traditional methods through studios. But in the next 10 years, if, if, I, if I can do this one correctly then we can do one of these a year for the next 10 years. I own the copyrights on these movies. They're my movies. And it, it becomes a way to make a living and, uh, and, and support, you know, great films like these small film noirs and small thrillers and character pieces that the studios and production companies aren't making. Today. So I'm, I'm honestly looking at this as a way uh, to, to keep making films and to fill a niche in there that, uh, that, that studios aren't making. And I think, I think audiences are going to come around. They're going to find some nuggets. They're going to find this last lonely place. They're going to find other films in the next couple of years that are made like this. And that's going to be self-fulfilling. They will start to support these films through Kickstarter or Indiegogo or, or you know, just uh, these kind of campaigns. So it's, it's a really it's a test, but I think it's, a, it's an important one, and it's kind of a revolution in the way indie films can and will be made in the next, you know, 10 years. But it's, you know, it's one of those, uh, it's, an, it's an amazing sort of moment in, in time where we can, 
you know, use Kickstarter. And, and I have to, I haven't thanked the, so many people that have, you know, uh, donated already. I mean, we have, right. you know, I think, let me look here quick. We have, uh, you know, well over 200 backers now. And it's very meaningful. A lot of old friends of mine, of course, but then, you know, just people that have read about the film and uh, obviously with the association of Bogart, that brought up a lot of interest in. So, you know, it's thanks to everybody that we can that we can make the film this way. Well, you've got the you've got the behind the scenes. I, I, what first? Let me say, uh, the, the awesome. I mean, you know, the, the approach that you're taking and that that Burns has, has taken and has taken is is uh, you know opening new doorways for filmmakers everywhere. And uh, I think you, you know more than ever with the advent of new technology and new you know iPads and iPhones and you know. God, gosh knows what's going to come down the pike. The the ability to have media in your pocket or on your wall or in your car or you know at the beach uh, that the avenues for uh, distribution that can be left in the hands of the creator as opposed to the middle people uh, has yet to even be scratched. I mean, it's, it's, I think I think. I think ultimately the the big people are going to try and take those channels. They're going to they're going to try and corporatize everything and own YouTube's and the Hulu's and everything, so that it it you know we may end up in the same world as we were in once before. But yeah, that's, the that's definitely true. I mean, they already to a certain degree do that. There's you know, uh, like you said, you know, Amazon's owned by corporate. You know, right. I don't think we'll ever completely break free. Nor do I really want to. I I don't mind right. their business. You know, this is just a new thing uh, and kind of revolutionary where, where filmmakers, and not just filmmakers, but artists of all stripes, you know, can can harness the, the power of the Internet. And uh, it takes a lot of work. I'll tell you, these past, uh, coming up on 30 days, I, I would I don't look at myself in the mirror uh, these days because I just, um, you know, I don't like the way I look. I mean, it really, you sit in front of the computer, you tweet, you Facebook, it, it's all consuming from the moment you get up in the morning till till you know the last cocktail at night and then fall into bed. You you know you, you just have to get on it, and it's exhausting. And you have to have a team of people. I've got some great people working with me to to, to do this. And uh, I even though you read how difficult it is uh, to, to crowdfund to use uh, Kickstarter, um, I kind of thought, oh, you know, well I can do that. I I sit in front of my computer every day anyway, but it's been a real challenge. And, uh, you know, anyone that decides to take this uh, route, which I highly recommend, I mean, it's been beyond raising the money for the uh, the film, it's been a huge education in how to sort of, you know, uh, start to market the film. Because the first time, the first day you put that Kickstarter up is your first day of marketing your film as well. Uh, gets the word True. out. It gets uh, people get to see what you're going to do. They start to anticipate it. They have questions. So as a filmmaker, that's thrilling because you know you're getting the word out from the very first day. And as a small film, you're not going to have millions of dollars to to have television ads or or even internet ads for that matter. Every person that you can touch uh, in a marketing sense uh, along this journey is going to be a, a prospective customer uh, on the back end. And uh, it's just you know it's a real kind of new new way of looking at making films. Yeah, uh, it, it 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 truly is. And and uh, what you said you know in this moment is 
is I think important for everybody to understand. It takes a lot of work to make a movie. I mean, from from uh, the idea to uh, developing that idea to you know having a shooting script to shooting the script and the production. Uh, that's an immense task in and of itself, and some of us love that, you know, and, and and we thrive on it, and that's just incredible. And then there's the post-production process, and then there's the, the you know, after that, there's the, the PR and marketing, there's the, the uh, getting the word out, finding an audience, getting it in the theaters or to the end consumer, whatever, however that may be, you know, and uh, and 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 where this filmmaker today lives is that they are typically more responsible for their work than they've ever been because in in many cases in the old days you know you made a movie you got it done you sold it to somebody and they were responsible for it you know yeah. and and you and you go on to the other thing. but in this day and age now for something like this you're responsible to market it you're responsible to make sure that it has a life you're the one who's you know you and or your team are the ones who are you know making sure that it gets into the hands of the people and, and fulfilling those, you know, orders and everything else, whether they're, you know, uh, actual DVDs or downloads. So uh, it, it's that work never does end, you know, if you're going to continue with the, the shelf life of a movie. On top of it, you know, mm-hmm. it said that that a Kickstarter campaign is more work if, if, or as hard, if not harder. <coughs> Excuse me, I've had bronchitis for the past 10 days. That's so no Normally I hit a mute button, but I can't today. Um, but anyway, so the uh, you know a Kickstarter cam- cam- campaign can be harder than actually making the movie, you know, and the outreach and and the constant you know staying with it and and uh, the constant you know making people aware that hey this is going on. Yeah, you know, you're constantly and- trying to reach out beyond your. You have X amount of Twitter followers, or you have X amount of friends on Facebook. And, you know, I've been calling it crowd annoying lately rather than crowdfunding <laughs> because almost every day I'm on a Facebook page. There I am. You know, I typically uh, for years now use Facebook and like Facebook just as a way to keep in touch with, you know, all my friends, all business associates, and I've always tried to, to you know, have some personality on the site uh, just because I'm a filmmaker uh, I'm not exactly a public figure, but, you know, I like to think of myself that way if people have questions sure. or, or if people want to contact me. You know, Facebook and Twitter is a good way to do it, so I've kept it open. I don't keep it privatized. But, uh, you know, when you're doing a Kickstarter campaign, you just sit and you stare at that screen and you're like, how can I get out beyond my circle? You know, how can this word get out into the public? And it really is draining. And, and not to mention that, you have to believe that you're going to hit your goal. Um, and I do believe we're going to hit it, even though it's nail-biting time. We've got, you know, three or two days left, essentially. We have 57 hours. We have a little over $10,000 to go, which is a, a huge sum. And uh, But you have actually, to it looks like you have. It. Actually, it looks like you may have had some contributions in the meantime. I think you've got about 9000 to go now. Mine says 64564. So it's we've we've had a number of uh, donations. Has it changed uh, or while, not? While, while we've been on it, well, maybe let me see. It could change. I haven't hit the reload, so maybe uh, maybe we are up and over. We had just previous to going. Oh yeah, you're right. So we are up just a little bit more. We uh, just previous to going on the air, we had. Uh, gosh, I'm going to find his name because he he donated uh, twenty five hundred dollars. That's a huge. Oh, cool. A, you know, and every once in a while, Brian Gustafson, if you're out there listening, thank you. That's a that's a major 
hit for us. And, uh, oh. you know, it's a, I think it's a co-producer credit. Um, and, uh, you know, those you're kind of hoping for those. And we've had a number of those kind of bumps along the way where you're watching all these people come in with, you know, with great pledges like $10 and $50. And all of a sudden, boom, into your email box, bang, 2500 It's just, you know, it gives you a, a thrill. But what I was going to say is you have to uh, plan that you're going to succeed. And if you're going to succeed, we plan to make start making the movie relatively quickly, probably end of September. So right. that means we have basically you're already in prep. So the times that you're not uh, tweeting or, or social media, you know, on social media, you've got to sit down and figure out, okay, it's sort of a be careful what you wish for a moment. If you get the money, now you've got to make the movie at this, at this budget. And so there's a lot of, as you know, there's, as directing a film, there's just a lot of research you've got to do. You've got to look into equipment. You've got to get cool people. You've got to drive around for locations. So, look, I sound like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I get to get up every morning and uh, do what I want to do. I wish, you know, everyone in the world could, could be in my situation. It's, it's frustrating, and I always say that, you know, no matter what you do for a living, you you have to reserve the right to complain about your job because That's it's true. your job. You know, That's so true. even people with the best jobs, they got to complain about them. But uh, but you know, I do get to get up in the morning and uh, and you know, even before the Kickstarter and after the Kickstarter, if I'm writing a script, I love writing. I get to get up, go to my Starbucks with a big cup of coffee, and and you know, get my four or six pages done and. Uh, so I'm I'm very lucky in that respect, but uh, but it is a constant work, a constant vigil of of you know staying on top of your game and coming up, kind of figuring out different ways to do things because you're you know one of the main reasons I, I don't think I said this, but one of the main reasons I I decided to do this is I have another script. It's a, a great script. I'm partnered with two great producers, Jeff Marchaletta and Josh Mandel, called The White Orchid, and it was a script I wrote a little over a year ago, and we had the business plan was to do something very similar to what we're doing with uh, This Last Lonely Place. But the script came out very good, and the same sort of thing happened that happened with The Big Empty. It was written for a very low budget, but suddenly uh, we got some casting directors on board. They loved it. They were able to get it into some agencies. The agencies love it. They, wanna, they send over lists of movie stars that you should consider, they don't want to attach them to your finance, but it suddenly entered into this bigger world that it was not really intended for. And right now it's in with, you know, one of the top you know, production companies in Hollywood. They've said they want to do it, but it's just as exciting as that is, what that world is all about waiting. It's all about, okay, well, this executive read it, and we've passed it on to this executive. They'll read it next week, and then it's going to be passed up to the next person. So you're consistently sitting here waiting for some word that, that, yeah, we like it, we're going to make it go forward. So I got just frustrated with that waiting aspect. You have to be patient, but you can't wait, if that makes sense. So I didn't want to wait. I said, I called up the production company. I said, look, I think I'm going to try to do this low-budget thing over the summer. It doesn't seem like if we even started with the White Orchid now that we wouldn't be shooting for X amount of months. And, you know, that really prompted me. I said, look, I, I want to shoot a movie this summer. So sit down, write a script that you know you can do over the summer. Um, 
I tried to make every scene in it. Like I kept imagining every scene. Could I just shoot this myself with the actors if I had to? Would I need a crew? Could I do it by myself? And so, you know, I think filmmakers have to keep that in mind. That you have to. It's a little. It's Shark Week, you know. So you have to keep moving forward. Uh, if, if not on this project that you love, keep your brain moving forward on another concept and kind of keep reinventing yourself as you go along. Because if you just sit with that one script and can send it out and send it out and send it out, that's what leads to so much frustration. And, you know, that's why people uh, are so interested in how do you make it happen. Uh, I mean, there's so much interest. I've been able to do it three times now with three different films. You think it, could e- it gets easier, but it doesn't get easier. You, you need to consistently kind of reinvent the way you do things and uh, try new things and uh, keep yourself invested in things because if, if you're not invested yourself then when you finally get to meet people they're not gonna they're not gonna be interested in you either. So uh you know you gotta consistently move forward. You know, take a take a lesson from Shark Week and keep going forward. I think that is incredible an incredible offering of advice. I think I think that is every one of us needs to to listen to that uh for for many different reasons i mean one of the one of the reasons why producers have you know a dozen things going or all these irons in the fire is because they don't know which one's going to pop first and if you only have one thing as as you were talking about if the person only has one script that they're you know laboring over for years and years and years it, it can be really frustrating and 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 you can feel desperate but if you've got four or five of them or two or three of them you know you're far ahead of the game yep yep and it's just, like I said, it's really a lot of it has to do with keeping yourself interested in, you know, yeah. in getting up in the morning and, and or whenever you're able to do your work and uh, keep yourself kind of keep your brain in the game, keep you moving forward. Here's what, you know, find find a creative outlet. Quite frankly, music is that for me. I, you know, I've enjoyed uh, being a musician all my life. And when I'm not sitting down uh, and and doing the nuts and bolts and filmmaking or writing a script, you know, I'm able to pick up my guitar, go out and play with a band. And it's, it's, it's the same aspect in that it's a creative output, but it's something that uh, it's a different, you know, tool in your brain that you can sort of keep engaged. And so it's just really important to have those kind of things to fall back on. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, let me do this before we have to go, because we are at the time and we're going to have to get going here. Um, let me get out a couple of things. One is your Twitter address is, Steve, is it Steve uh, underscore Anderson? It's uh, two underscores and then Steve Anderson. So it's at underscore underscore Steve Anderson. Okay. And then and you also have one for the, uh, the last lonely place, this last lonely place, and that one is? That's uh, at last lonely place. Uh, we, uh, if we tried to do the whole title, I think it was one, one was letter too long. Yeah, so yeah. We, uh, it was at last lonely place. So, yeah, you can follow at, us at, there. Uh, you'll see our relentless tweets of uh, you know, trying to close this gap. And uh, we also have, I, I'm just checking to see if it actually has the Facebook page. is facebook.com uh, backslash this last lonely place. So you can find a lot of information there as well. Well, that's 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 awesome. You know what I'd like to including uh, Including a link ahead. to this. And I said you can find it, including a link to this interview. So, uh, you know, if 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 anyone's out there interested or they missed it, you know, you can find both on your website and our Facebook page. You can find links to, to this uh, broadcast. And I encourage people who are listening, especially in the next uh, 24 
or 30, 50 hours. We're broadcasting live right now. Uh, it, it is, what, uh, almost, we'll say 1130 uh, Pacific Standard Time. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's my, my computer says 1123, so we're coming up on an hour and a half here. So, so and we're on the, what day are we today? We're on the, the uh, 15th. So in the next... Whenever you listen to this interview, if you listen months and years from now, go ahead and share it with your friends and and your family and and your industry connections. But especially in, in say, the next 48 hours, the next two days, if you can share this interview, if you can spread it around, if you can spread Steve's Kickstarter campaign uh, near and far to everyone and anyone you can think of, that will help him out, help him get his project made. And, uh, and, uh, you know, if if you're copying and pasting the links or or whatever you have to do, that's fantastic. If you can help, if you can give and donate, you get perks back. Uh, do so as well. And, uh, and but thank you for paying attention and, and thank you for for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate that. We're going to have to go, Steve. But I would like to invite you right. back because, especially you know, I don't you know once you once you get funded and you're making your movie and it's going pretty quick. You know, you're going to have some busy days ahead, but maybe somewhere around the time that you're finishing your movie or sometime when you have time, we'll have you come back and you can tell us how it went and what it was like to shoot the film and and, and what you did and who you cast and all that kind of stuff in it and how you cast it. Uh, Yeah, I'd be be happy to. There's Obviously, there'll be a lot of new stories in the next couple of months, so it'll be good to, to get those out as well. All right, well, we're going to say goodbye here officially. I'm going to give you a call back once uh, I'm off the air as well just to check back with you. And then, okay, well, and thanks then, for I really appreciate you having me on, Rex. I mean, it means a lot to uh, to me and to everyone involved with the campaign. It's, you know, just we're trying everything we can do to get the word out there to close this gap um, so we can go ahead and, and, you know, make the movie. And, you know, we've been pretty successful so far, but these last, uh, you know, 50-plus hours are going to be critical to getting – to our goal. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Oh, you bet. And thank you for being here and for spending your time and sharing sharing your thoughts and ideas and 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 stellar advice with our listeners. I, I truly appreciate it. And thank you very much. So have a great day. Sure. All right. And best success with the campaign. Okay. Thanks a lot, Rick. All right. Bye. Uh, fascinating guest, uh, Mr. Steve Anderson, and uh, his work both before. Uh, uh, this last lonely place, and now this movie that he's doing and crowdfunding. Uh, I thank you, Steve, for being here, and I thank you, my readers and listeners of Movie Beat. I got many more exciting guests coming up in the near future, so be sure to stay tuned. Please keep sharing this website and these interviews with all your friends and your contacts, and please do rate uh, podcasts and review the show. Leave a comment uh, with the player. Uh, as you're listening or after the player closes down, that really, really helps us out. You become a friend of Rex Sykes Movie Beat by going to Facebook and clicking on Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends, the like button. Um, I'm way past my limit on, on the friends that I can have on my personal profile, but you can stay in touch through uh, Movie Beat Friends. So uh, you go ahead and do that. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. Uh, the last word is abbreviated. I have a Rex Sykes Movie Beat channel spell that just the way it is on youtube rex Ice movie beat channel on youtube and uh and then go back again and uh and follow uh steve anderson and this last lonely uh, the last 
Lonely Place on Twitter and uh, underscore underscore Steve Anderson on Twitter and his Kickstarter campaign, This Last Lonely Place. All right, everyone, have a fabulous day. Make your movies and complete your projects. And until we meet the next time, that's a wrap.